morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're new with us this morning, a very special welcome to you. Uh, You're coming into the life of our church in a really, really great season as every week more and more people uh, are either coming back after COVID or joining us for the first time. And we're picking up in the middle of a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is now at this point, as we're nearing toward the end of the book, really starting to drive home one of the major points. And the major points of this book consist around the ideas of strength and weakness for this life. He's in the middle of this section where he's talking about bragging and boasting in certain types of ways and not in other ways. And as you turn there, you, I'm sure, recognize that nobody really tends to brag about their weakness. (laughs) Nobody tends to brag about the bad things that happen to them. When we brag, we typically boast about our strengths or the good things that happen to us. But imagine with me for a moment that you asked a friend of yours how his week was going, and he responded something like this. My week has been absolutely amazing. None of my coworkers like me. But that's okay because I lost my job this week anyway. And my wife hasn't spoken to me for the whole week. And my kids tend to generally steer clear of me either because of my dad jokes or because they think I smell a little bit funny. I thought with all the free time I had on my hands now that this would be the week where I finally took the plunge and got into cryptocurrency. And so I took out half of the savings of my retirement account. I opened up an account on Robinhood on my iPhone. I dumped it all in Bitcoin. But you know what happened? In two days, the value went down 20%. So I got scared. I pulled the money back out. I put it back into the retirement account a little bit lighter than it was before. I tried to go on vacation, but the TSA wouldn't let me through the airport. Those guys are shady anyway. And on the way home from the airport, I stopped to get some really nice steaks to grill that evening for myself and the family. But while I was cooking them, I started the timer and I got enraptured in those little animal videos on Facebook. You know the ones. Those ones about snakes and mice and tigers and rhinos and all of those cool things. And I totally forgot that the steaks were on the grill. So we didn't have dinner that night. I was angry at my mistake, so I turned around and kicked the dog, but before I could even kick the dog, he beat me to it and kicked me. I'd say that I am absolutely crushing it this week. How is yours? Plenty of people brag, but nobody brags like that. Well, nobody brags like that unless they're trying to make a point. And in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul seems to be boasting about all the wrong kinds of things. And he does so to make a point. And so follow with me as we pick up 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 16 through verse 33. This is what he says. He says, I repeat, Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. For what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. 
Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. In chapters 10 and 11, we see Paul directly attacking the idea of wrongful boasting. He has seen that the self-promoting boasting of the people that he sarcastically calls the super apostles gained them an increased audience among the Corinthian people. They were gaining traction and notoriety for their own fame and they were doing so at the expense of the gospel. So in the first part of the chapter 11, Paul has prepared them and prepared us for the fact that he will indeed meet them on the playing field of boasting. This is a playing field that he abhors. It's a playing field that he calls foolish again and again and again. But his tact was one of sarcasm and rebuke in the midst of this foolishness. And in verse 18 and 19, we see in this text how the passage is continuing to just drip with tone as he says, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. These false teachers or super apostles, as some called them, were claiming that they were God's anointed because of the good things that were happening in their life. And conversely, Paul was castigated because 
of all the difficulty that was in his life. But now the tables are turning and Paul displays who the real fools are. Their embrace of a false gospel has dire circumstances. And he says so in verse 19 as he sarcastically tells them that they put up with people who make them slaves and devour them and take advantage of them and put on airs and strike them in the face. It's not a very comforting description of what these leaders or teachers are actually giving to them. And it just goes to show you that when you embrace false teaching and if you embrace a false gospel, that the results are serious in their consequence. They're dire in their circumstance. They are harmful in their effect to you. A false gospel enslaves you, Paul says, because it will often place demands on you that God himself doesn't even demand of you. A false teacher will take advantage of others by promising them things that they cannot deliver if the adherence of their teaching will only do certain things, things that those teachers themselves will often not even do. And there's plenty of examples of this throughout church history and even in other areas of life. I think of the book that Michael Moss wrote a number of years ago called Salt, Sugar, and Fat. He studies how over the past three decades, America's largest food producers carefully studied how to help us all crave the junk food that we crave. For example, some of the food industry's biggest names, including Campbell Soup and General Foods and Kraft and PepsiCo and others, hired Crave consultants like Dr. Howard Moskowitz to help them determine what they call your bliss point. The point where food companies can optimize your craving. Frito-Lay, for example, the makers of, of course, Lay's potato chips, and a shockingly high number of varieties of Cheetos, 21 varieties, I think, at its highest point, operated a research complex near Dallas, Texas that employed 500 chemists, psychologists, and technicians and spent up to $30 million a year to find your bliss point for their junk food. One food scientist called Cheetos one of the most marvelously constructed foods on the planet in terms of pure pleasure. I imagine that some of you might agree. Cheetos has what's called a vanishing caloric density. In other words, because it melts down really quickly, your brain thinks that there's no calories in it, and therefore you can just keep eating them forever. Interestingly enough, many of the former executives of these food companies that Moss interviewed avoid the very foods that they try to get the rest of us to eat. Howard Moskowitz, for example, doesn't drink Pepsi products because he he claims that soda is not good for your teeth. The Frito-Lay executive admitted that he avoids processed foods, like Cheetos. And Moss concludes, like other former food executives I met, 
this Frito-Lay executive overhauled his entire diet to avoid the very foods he once worked so hard to perfect. Friends, false teachers often press doctrine that they themselves can't or won't even live by. And this was happening among the Corinthian church. And those false teachers were known for their boasting, just as many false teachers are today. And so Paul writes about the credentials that point to strength in the midst of weakness. And as we look down in the text a little further, we see real confidence in the flesh. Paul comes to them and says, this is what fleshly boasting should look like. If you're going to brag, let me show you how to do it. And in verse 21 and 22, he shows us just that. Look at it with me. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Paul is pointing to his identity or to his pedigree that if there was anyone who was able to boast based in who he was and where he had come from, it was this guy. And those three little rhetorical sentences point to an ethnic identity, a religious identity, and a covenantal identity. He says with regard to ethnic identity that he is a Hebrew in the midst of a church that has a number of Gentiles in it who claimed a unique nearness to God. The Jewish man could make the claim based on the fact that he was part of God's chosen people and that his ethnic race was clearly founded by God and for God. His identity was pure. He also points to his religious identity. He refers to himself as an Israelite, pointing to the fact that his religious heritage gave him certain rights. Paul talks about the Israelites in a number of places throughout the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 9, he is talking about God's purposes in election and he is, he is saying that he would do anything to have his Jewish brothers and sisters saved, so much so that he points to the rights that they have. He said, they're Israelites in chapter 9, verse 4 of Romans. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then Paul points to his identity as a member of the covenant community. He refers to himself as an offspring of Abraham. Now, to some false apostles who are claiming that their physical success is, a, is an evidence that God has blessed them with unique promises and favor, Paul points out the fact that if there is anyone who could expect the benefit of the promises of God, it would be him. 
He was a child of Abraham, which meant he was a child of the covenant. And these promises weren't new promises. They weren't suspect or open to interpretation. These were the promises of old, promises that God had been slowly and consistently fulfilling to his covenant people throughout the course of thousands of years. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you think that you come from the right family, have the right education, or have evidenced the right kind of blessing, and that these are the things that point to the favor of God resting upon you, think again. (laughs) You cannot top my identity and how it points to the nearness of God, says Paul. Friends, if we pause here, there's a really important application to consider. Because Paul is not talking about the aspects of his identity and boasting about them to prove his worth or value or his favor with God. In fact, he is boasting about his identity to prove the exact opposite. That his identity, as pure as it is, is not what gives someone favor with God. And there are many, many people today who wrongly think or, or function like they think that because they are from a certain ethnic identity or familial identity, that they will automatically have God's favor in their life. There are some people today who think that because their parents were Christians, that they're automatically Christians too. There are some people who think that because they're Americans and that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values, that to be an American means that I'm a Christian too. But this is not the case. Not your family name or your country or any other part of your identity puts you in a position to be favored by God. Each person, each person in this room needs to engage God and respond to God's offer for salvation on their own. Each person needs to repent of the sins that we have committed. Each person needs to respond to God in faith in the Lord Jesus. Each person can be restored to God individually. And then those individuals create an incredible family identity, both in your blood family and in the corporate family here, and even to some extent in varying degrees in our nation. Conversely, some people might look at aspects of their identity 
and they say, I can't be a Christian and enjoy the favor of God in my life or in eternity because I'm not from the right family or I'm not the right nationality or I don't have the right education. I can't tell you how many times I've heard expressions like this. I'm an Arab and therefore I can't be a Christian. I'm a, we're Muslims. Or I'm from an Irish or Italian or South American family. And so obviously we're all Catholics and we're not Protestant Christians. Or I'm not smart enough to get into all this Bible reading stuff that you Christians seem to really care about. And so I don't know if I'm smart enough to be a Christian at all. Or my identity as a person is wrapped up so much in all the bad things that I've done in the past or the bad things my family has done. There's no way that I could experience the favor of God in my life. And the list goes on, but you need to know if that's you, you need to know that God accepts sinners of all kinds and he does so from all places and all ethnicities and all kinds of families and backgrounds. And we see the story of the Bible is replete with example after example of this. I think way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Joshua chapter two, there was a woman who was residing in a city who was not a Jew. She was a Gentile and she was not just a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. And she was not just a prostitute. She ran a house of prostitutes. And when she came to encounter God and she saw of his magnificence and his mercy, she followed him and this resulted in her not only being used to save some of his servants, but eventually to become a God follower among his people and become the great-great-grandmother of the greatest Israelite king in the Old Testament, King David, her name was Rahab. I think in the New Testament, many examples of Jews and Gentiles, of slaves and free, of fornicators and murderers, and upstanding citizens. People from the right families and the wrong families putting their faith in Jesus. One such example is that of the Ethiopian eunuch, an African government official who was castrated, that's what it means to be a eunuch, as a vow of loyalty. And in Acts chapter 8, he's reading the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah and he puts his faith in Jesus and is baptized. And you see this in the book of Revelation. You see a picture of the heavenly throne room of eternity. And in this picture, you see that God has saved all kinds of sinners to himself. In fact, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, this is the vision of John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so you see, there are no identity requirements for you to find favor with God. Favor with God comes to you through faith in Jesus. And that faith ultimately changes your identity. And so Paul continues. He has set up the fact that he's on the playing field of boasting. He shows them that if anyone is able to boast in his identity, it's him. And then you would expect him to continue this boast, moving from his identity to his accomplishments. You would most likely expect him to simply crush his opponents in this argument by listing all the things that he's done. And the argument would be over really quickly. He could say to them, I've planted all of these different churches and I've seen all of these different converts responding to my messages and I've overseen a tremendous number of baptisms and I've been to a number of different places and I've spoken to a number of different dignitaries and I've spoken uh, to a variety of different types of people and even think about all the money that I've raised all for the sake of the gospel. All of those things would have made a really good boast and he would have crushed his opponents and the arguments would have been over. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he shows the foolishness of boasting by boasting about the opposite things that you would expect. He doesn't boast about his accomplishments. He boasts about his suffering. The very thing that shows that he is actually really weak. His persecution. The very thing that shows that he can't control the situations that he's in. He boasts about the things that display that he cannot persuasively change the minds of those who are in authority, that he can't accomplish anything in his life according to his own skills, abilities, ethnic, religious, or covenantal identity. He boasts about all the bad stuff, and he does so in this list. And so let's just consider it very quickly as to what he's boasting about. The first boast you see in verse 24 is that he has received the 40 lashes minus one a total of five times. This is a punishment that Jews executed upon Jews in the synagogue or the temple. 39 lashes with a whip that was often embedded with bone or rock. The reason why they did 39 is because somewhere back there, they decided that 40 was probably the number that was going to kill a man. And so they wanted to bring up right up to the edge of death. Paul received that lashing five times, a total of 195 lashes. None of them are mentioned in scripture, so we can assume they were probably early in his ministry, but he kept preaching the gospel anyway. And as a result, he would receive 39 more and he preached the gospel anyway and he would receive 39 more and he preached the gospel anyway and he would receive 39 again. And just think, for most of us, our biggest obstacle to sharing the gospel 
is that we're afraid of what people might think or say about us. There's nothing in comparison to 195 lashings. Second boast is that he was beaten with rods three times, verse 25. Whereas the 39 lashes were the punishment of the Jewish authorities, the rod was the punishment of the Roman authorities. Stripped naked, beaten at the hands of the Gentile authorities. Why? Because of the uprising that the gospel caused in their midst. The third boast is that Paul was stoned, verse 25. Acts 14, 19 tells us of that stoning. And we see the people of Lystra who left him for dead because they believed that he was blaspheming God by proclaiming that Jesus was indeed God's son. The fourth boast is that Paul was shipwrecked three times, verse 25. Acts 27 records one of those three. But beyond that, we know that the disasters at sea were a fairly common occurrence in the ancient world. So common, in fact, that most people would rather take the long way around (laughs) on land. But Paul was driven with a purpose to spread this good news of God's grace in his missionary journeys. And on one such occasion, it says that it left him at sea, floating in the water for an entire day and an entire night until he was rescued. The fifth boast is described as a variety of specific dangers. Verse 26 and 27, danger from rivers and robbers and his own people and from Gentiles, danger in the city and in the wilderness and at sea, danger from false brothers, people who bear the name Christian, but live in opposition to it. Sleepless nights of hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. And the sixth boast is the worst. We know it's the worst because it's positioned last. He talks about the pressure and anxiety that he has over all of the churches. Verse 28. Because Paul had a pastor's heart and the spiritual well-being of all the people in all of the churches that he planted weighed heavily upon him. It was the weight of souls. He knew that following Jesus would be hard. He knew that there would be false teachers that would come into the midst of those churches and try to devour them like wolves. When He prayed for them and visited them and wrote them. And when the Christians in those churches struggled, he emotionally suffered. And when they succeeded, he had great, great joy. Because there is nothing like the weight of somebody's soul that rests upon you. And if you have never felt that weight, I would encourage you (laughs) Just start praying for one of your friends or neighbors that doesn't know the Lord and talking to them about the things of God and see how God impresses that weight and severity upon you. And so there you have it. Lashing, beating, stoning, shipwreck, dangers, and pressure from churches. 
This is not the list of success. These are not the things that you put on the resume if you're trying to garner favor to get a job. And these are not, certainly not the things that you would share with someone else if you were trying to convey to them that they should follow you because in following you like you follow Christ, you will experience the tremendous favor of God in your life. When people look upon a guy like Paul and all of this stuff, if they think about it in terms of their worldly well-being, they say, no thanks, <laughs> I'll pass. No wonder Paul says in Galatians six seventeen, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Suffering for Jesus was part of the job description for this apostle. And so why would he list all of these terrible things in an excessively foolish boast? Why would he brag about all the wrong things? He's doing so to make a point. <laughs> and the point is found in verses 30 through 33. Look at it with me. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped into his hands. The principle is clear. The story after it, less so. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And the implied second half of that is because those things display the strength of the Lord himself. How could any of these things happen? How could all of these churches be planted? How could lives be saved? How could the gospel be proclaimed with someone who is this pathetic and this weak? Only because of the strength of God. And the ending after that is sort of peculiar, isn't it? This little story about being lowered down through a window. How does the principle of boasting in our weakness that shows the strength of the Lord relate to that little story at the end? Well, the key to understanding it is to understand Paul and his context with this city of Damascus. It was the city Damascus that Paul was headed toward as a Pharisee on a mission to kill the Christians. <laughs> Paul, in all of his strength and all of his own might, leveraged all that he had and who he was in his ethnic identity to stand against the gospel of Jesus and to kill those who stood with him. However, when Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, he overwhelmed him with his being. He displayed grace and mercy upon him, and he called him to follow him with his life. And Paul was converted. The chief of sinners 
the one who was diametrically opposed to the things of Christ, was now called to follow him. And eventually he continued to that city, Damascus. But instead of entering in strength and reputation and leaving in power, he now entered in a humble boldness and was forced to leave the city in the only way a criminal would leave, by sneaking away in a basket through a window. He came in humility and he left in weakness. And so from the very beginning, this servant of Jesus knew that weakness, our weakness, his weakness, shows the strength of the Lord. Here's the thing. We're starting to see this theme resound now over the last number of weeks, and it's a theme that's worth continuing to lean into because everyone is tempted to think of themselves more highly than they ought, at least at one time or another, and more often with some frequency. (laughs) But our frailty, our shortcomings, our sin struggles, our lack of control, they all point to one thing. They all point to the fact that our weakness actually displays God's strength. And so what do you do when God does something incredible in your life and your first instinct is to step back and say, I got it under control. (laughs) You take a moment and you remember your weakness and you point to God's strength. What do you think when God uses you to do something like share the gospel in somebody's life and he saves that friend that you have been praying for for 10 years and then that little thought creeps into the back of your mind that says, wow, I'm sure glad that I was so faithful over the last 10 years for the sake of this person. What do you think? You remember the strength of God that is the thing is able to save people. And what do you do when you're chastised for being a Christian because your friends or your family look at your life and they say, certainly not you. You cannot be a follower of God and experience any of his favor because I went to high school with you. And I know the things that we used to do together. You say, isn't it amazing that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our weakness shows the strength of the Lord. And there are a lot of stories that we could share about this that illustrate this point. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this practically looks like next week. But let me just close this morning with one story of a guy who was not of the right pedigree. (laughs) And God's strength 
was displayed in him. His name was Ramon Piagwe. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was a Sequoia Indian born and raised in the rainforest of Ecuador. He did not have the right pedigree. He wasn't trained at any of the great art institutes of the world. But this man from the jungle won the Windsor and Newton Millennium Art Competition, which at the time was the largest painting competition in the world. His painting entitled Eternal Amazon was selected from over 22,000 entries by professionals and amateur artists from 51 nations and was on display at the United Nations in New York City. Ramon, who started drawing as a teenager nearly 50 years ago, was not introduced to oil painting until 1993 in Quito, Ecuador. The young man who had captured the attention of the art world was first encouraged in his efforts by Orville and Mary Johnson. Wycliffe Bible translators working in his village. The Johnsons recognized a God-given ability and had encouraged him to keep drawing. And when they ended up leaving his village in the early 1970s, having completed their translation of the New Testament, the belongings they took with them included 30 drawings by Ramon. But since then, Ramon has become world famous. He's met the Prince of Wales and the Secretary General of the United Nations. An eternal Amazon has been viewed by ambassadors, artists, dignitaries, and members of the press and public from all around the world. Ramon is quick to give credit to the Lord for the acclaim he has received. He says, I can't take pride of the gift that I have as an artist, for it is God that has given me this talent, and I want to use it for his glory. And when the elderly missionary couple heard about the exhibit at the United Nations, they decided to go to New York and surprise this South American artist. And they entered the exhibition hall and they found Ramon surrounded by a slew of very important people. And as he looked beyond his admiring fans, he saw the Johnsons and he began to cry. And they hugged and they wept, surrounded by dignitaries of the world. And Ramon repeated over and over to Orville and Mary, you are the ones that should be honored, not me. For you came to give us the gospel. And I believe that that is why I can now be here. A man was not from the right country. He was not from the right family. He was certainly not from the right art institutions. And yet, God did incredible things in him and through him. Our weakness shows the strength of the Lord. Remember it in your life and rely on that kind of strength even this week in the days ahead. Let's pray.
Father, it does not take long to consider the many weaknesses and failings that we have. The things that we desire to accomplish but cannot. The ways that we feel like we continue to push the rock up the hill and it continues to fall back down at our feet. But we thank you, God, that you are strong. And we recognize that our weakness in this life, not only for practical and material things, extends into spiritual things all the more. And so we pray that today would be the day that we continue to rely on you as the giver of all good gifts, as the one who saves us and keeps us, as the one who helps us to resist temptation, as the one who forgives us when we succumb to it. We thank you for the strength that you would accomplish anything through people like us. And we rely upon you now in Jesus' name. Amen.